Volume 1, Chapter 6, Part 2 of A Popular History of England from the Earliest Times to the Reign of Queen Victoria. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Popular History of England from the Earliest Times to the Reign of Queen Victoria by Francois-Pierre-Guillaume Guizot Chapter 6, Part 2 King Louis VI had promised William Cleton the investiture of Normandy when in 1113 war again broke out between France and England. It lasted for two years, and all the castles on the frontier were captured from Henry. His able diplomacy procured him in 1115 an advantageous treaty which assured to Prince William of England the hand of Matilda of Anjou, daughter of the Count Fulke. No one thought of reserving the rights of William Cliton over Normandy, and when the great Norman barons were convoked in 1117 to take the oath of allegiance to Prince William, no claim was advanced in favour of the exile. His uncle had made an attempt to entice him into England, promising the gift of three large counties, but the young man was not willing to trust himself to his father's jailer, and we meet with him again in 1119 at the head of a confederation formed on the continent against King Henry. At the Battle of Brenville, which preceded by some years the close of a war of mingled success and disaster, William Cliton, or Fitzrobert as he was often called, penetrated into the presence of his uncle. But his knights were repulsed, and the marriage of Prince William with Matilda of Anjou, celebrated sumptuously in 1120, destroyed the hopes which his cousin had conceived. King Louis accepted the homage of Normandy, represented by the son of the King of England, thus sparing the regal pride of Henry. The policy of this prince prevailed. He resolved to return in triumph to England, and on the 25th of November, 1120, he prepared to set sail from the little port of Barfleur, when a mariner, and well known upon that coast, advanced towards him, presenting a mark of gold. Stephen, son of Erard, my father served yours on the sea, said he and it was he who steered the vessel aboard which your father sailed for the conquest. Sire King, I entreat you to grant me in fief the same office. I have a vessel called the Blanche Neff, well fitted out. The king's ship was already prepared. He promised Stephen to give him as passengers the Prince William and his sister, Lady Mary, Countess of Perche. The Blanche Neff was a large vessel. Three hundred persons went aboard her as he set sail. The king had preceded them on the sea, but Thomas Fitzstephen was proud of the fast sailing of his vessel and made no haste to depart, thinking to overtake the squadron without difficulty. There was dancing and drinking upon the poop of the vessel. All the company were excited when at length they set out. Night had come on. The moon had risen. The wind was fresh. They advanced rapidly, for the sailors lent aid with their oars. They were coasting, when suddenly the ship struck upon a rock at the level of the water, then called the Ras de Cat, now the Ras de Catville. The Blancheness planks were opened by the shock, and she began to fill with water. The cry of terror which arose from those aboard reached the vessel of the king, sailing at a considerable distance. But no one understood the cause of the noise. Henry disembarked quietly, 
his children had launched a boat on the sea, and Prince William had entered it with some of his companions. But the cries of his sister, the Lady Mary, induced him to return to the foundering vessel. He had nearly rescued her when the other passengers, driven wild with despair, sprang into a mass into the feeble skiff, which immediately disappeared with all its occupants. The vessel sank almost at the same instant. Two men only clung to the mast, a butcher of Rouen and a young nobleman named Gilbert de Lille. For a moment, the head of Thomas Fitzstephen appeared above the waves. What has become of the king's son? he cried to the two survivors. He has disappeared with his sister, and every one with him, they replied. Unhappy me, exclaimed the pilot, as he plunged again into the waves. Gilbert's hands were frozen. He relaxed his hold of the mast which supported him, and was drowned before the eyes of his companion, who was well wrapped in his sheepskin and hardened against the effects of rough weather. He held out until the morning, and was rescued by some fishermen on the coast. From his lips they learned the news of the disaster which had befallen the Blanche Neffs. In England they did not dare to apprise King Henry, who was waiting the arrival of his children. At length a boy presented himself before him and cast himself at his feet. Henry assisted him to rise, and the child related the story of the wreck of the Norman vessel and from that time the king was never seen to smile, say the chroniclers, without, however, expending any more tenderness over the fate of Prince William, whose pride and harshness had caused apprehensions in England. If I ever come to reign over these miserable Saxons, he was accustomed to say, I will compel them to draw the plough like oxen. So he perished on a quiet night, and in calm weather, repeated the Saxons, and it came to pass that his head, instead of being encircled by a crown of gold, was broken upon the rocks. It was God himself who decreed that the son of the Norman should not behold England again. King Henry had no male heir, although he had married again with the daughter of the Duke of Louvain. Many of the barons seemed inclined to rally around William Fitzrobert, who had lately excited another revolt. Henry resolved to settle the crown upon his daughter, the Empress Maud, who had lately become a widow. All the ability of the king could not prevent at first a feeling of repugnance among the great nobles. But the royal power had become very great, supported as it was by the antagonism of two hostile races between whom the king alone held the balance. The Normans yielded. On Christmas Day, 1126, the Empress Maud was declared heiress to the kingdom, and six months later she married Geoffrey Plantagenet, son of Fulk, Count of Anjou, whose father had transferred to him his domains on setting out for the Holy Land. Maud had, for some time, resisted the plans of her father for her marriage, which had been kept so secret that the barons protested, maintaining that the king had not the right to dispose without their approval of their future sovereign. The Nupital festivities lasted three weeks. Heralds armed and in magnificent costume traversed the streets and squares of Rouen, crying aloud, 
in the name of King Henry, let no man here present inhabitant or stranger dare to absent himself from the royal rejoicings. For whosoever shall not take part in the amusements and games shall be deemed guilty of offence towards his lord the king. Henry had obtained the oaths of all the barons, but he had too much sense and knowledge of human nature not to be aware how precarious the future situation of his daughter must be if his nephew, William Fitzrobert, should live to dispute the throne. The young prince appeared indeed to be destined to a brilliant future. King Louis had brought about a marriage between him and the sister of his wife, a princess of Savoy, and he had given to her for a portion Pontois, Chaumont, and the Vexin. Soon afterwards, Charles the Good, Count of Flanders, was assassinated in the church at the foot of the altar. Louis entered Flanders for the purpose of punishing the murderers, and the Count, not having left any children, Louis conferred his domains upon William Fitzrobert, great-grandson of the old Count Baldwin. The young Count, who remained in his new territory, had soon a cause of quarrel with a certain number of his subjects, who called the King of England to their aid. The latter supported, as a rival to his nephew, the Landgrave Thierry of Alsace, who soon made himself master of Lille, of Ghent, and other important places. The son of Robert Curthose, however, had inherited the military talents of his father and grandfather. He completely defeated his adversary under the walls of Alost, but he had received a wound in the hand from a pike, and this injury, at first regarded as of little importance, turned to gangrene. William was carried to the monastery of St. Omer, where he died on the 27th of July, 1128. He was not yet 26 years of age, and he left no issue. His last care had been to recommend to the clemency of his uncle the Norman barons who had served his cause. The king willingly pardoned them, so rejoiced was he to be delivered from the anxieties which his nephew caused him. Duke Robert was still living, but these successes had no more effect than the death of his son upon the dreary captivity of the unfortunate blind prisoner. The Empress Maud and her husband often gave trouble to King Henry by their quarrels. The birth of their eldest son in 1133 for a moment appeased their dissensions. The child was christened Henry, after his grandfather, and the Normans called him Henry Fitzempress, to distinguish him from the king, whom they called Henry Fitzwilliam Conqueror. Two other sons were born to Count Geoffrey Plantagenet, and the quarrels recommenced. The Count claimed Normandy, which the king had promised to relinquish in his favour, but Henry still refused. He was no more disposed than his father had been to strip himself of his clothing before bedtime. His strength, however, was declining. He was dejected. On the 25th of November, 1135, anxious to dispel his low spirits, he set out for the forest of lyon la forêt in Normandy. When he returned, he was hungry, and at supper he ate greedily of a dish of lampreys, which his physician regarded as unwholesome. His digestion was disordered, he fell ill, and died on the 1st of December at the age of 66, leaving all his domains on both sides of the sea to his daughter Maud 
and her descendants. He had reigned 35 years, and with the exception of some unimportant expeditions against the French, England had enjoyed peace under his sway. This great blessing had been sullied by many crimes. Neither plighted faith nor natural feeling had ever impeded Henry I in his ambitious projects. But he had placed the dominion of the Norman race in England on such solid foundations that the troubles which followed upon his death could not shake it, and if success were the test of moral worth, Henry Fitzwilliam Conqueror might be regarded as a great king. All his efforts and all his precautions, however, had not enabled him to secure the secession to his daughter. Scarcely had he breathed his last when his nephew Stephen, son of the Count of Bois and of Adela, daughter of William the Conqueror, set sail immediately for England. The king had always treated his nephew with particular favour. He had given him vast fiefs in England. The Count Stephen was very popular among the Normans and the Saxons. His wife, Maud, niece of Matilda, first wife of Henry I, even belonged to the royal Saxon family. Stephen boldly laid claim to the throne, which could not, he said, belong to a woman. He was descended like her from William the Conqueror, and in the same degree. England was not a property which could be bequeathed at pleasure and without respect for the wishes of the people. Many barons were of Stephen's opinion, and the treasure of King Henry, which his brother, the Bishop of Winchester, had yielded up to him, secured to him the other adherents. The chief minister of the deceased king, Roger, Bishop of Salisbury, whom Henry had originally remarked and attached to his person as the readiest priest at saying a mass whom he had ever met with, allowed himself to be won by money. William Courbois, Archbishop of Canterbury, was more scrupulous, but was persuaded that the king, irritated by the conduct of his daughter, had adopted his nephew on his deathbed. Stephen was elected by the barons and prelates, who considered themselves absolved from their oath towards the empress because she had married without their consent, and the coronation took place at Westminster on the 26th of December, St. Stephen's Day. The Pope confirmed the election with the more readiness because Stephen had accepted the oath of the clergy under the condition imposed by the bishops of respect for the liberties and discipline of the church. The barons had obtained new fiefs with permission to fortify their castles and to construct new ones. Those who were greedy for gain received money, and King Stephen was in such high favour on both sides of the sea that when Geoffrey Plantagenet entered Normandy to claim the rights of his wife, the natural animosity of the Normans against the Angevins broke forth with violence. The court was compelled to retire and to conclude with Stephen a truce for two years in consideration of a pension of 3,000 marks of silver. The king crossed over into Normandy and received there the homage of the barons and Louis VII, surnamed the Young, then King of France, betrothed to his young sister Constance. The king crossed over into Normandy and received there the homage of the barons and Louis VII, surnamed the Young, then King of France, betrothed to his young sister Constance, to the little Eustace, son of Stephen, granting to the child the investiture of Normandy. Among the barons who had taken the oath of allegiance to Stephen was Robert, Earl of Gloucester, a natural son of Henry I, who had renounced all rights to the throne in favour of his sister, the Empress Maud. Like her, 
he had pretended to yield, but like her, he had not abandoned the cause. Maintained in the possession of his large domains throughout his oath of fidelity, he crossed from Normandy into England, and very soon the tranquillity which had reigned there gave place to a secret agitation. Several partial risings took place, but these were only the precursors of the great insurrection which Gloucester was preparing, and which David, King of Scotland, was about to support as protector of the rights of his sister, the Empress Maud. The mine was dug. The Earl of Gloucester retired into Normandy, whence he wrote to Stephen solemnly, renouncing his allegiance. Other great barons followed his example, and fortifying themselves in their castles, overwhelmed the king with reproaches, accusing him of having failed to keep his oath towards them. Ah! exclaimed Stephen, the traitors! They made me king, and now they desert me. But by the nativity of God, they shall never make me a deposed king. In this perilous situation, Stephen displayed great energy, laying siege to the rebel castles one after the other, and disposing largely of the domains of the crown in favour of the barons who were faithful or who became penitent. Meanwhile, the King of Scotland had entered Northumberland at the head of a numerous army from the highlands and lowlands. Isles and mountains, the regular troops and undisciplined savages, knights clad in iron, the best lances in Europe, and mountaineers half-naked, constituting this army of Scotch emmets, as the English expressed it, covered all the country extending from the Tweed to the north of the county of York, ravaging and pillaging on their way. The king was at a distance, detained by the insurrections of the barons in the south. The northern counties defended themselves. The Normans called to their aid the inhabitants of the country, those English who, though so often oppressed, possessed a vitality which resisted every form of tyranny. They united with their conquerors to defend the country against this attack. The Archbishop of York, Toustan or Thurston, a decrepit old man, sinking under age and infirmities, but full of energy and foresight, caused a search to be made in the churches for the standards of St. John of Beverley, St. Cuthbert of Durham, and St. Wilfred of Ripon, which had remained there since the conquest. They raised aloft these consecrated banners upon a car similar to the Caroccio, which bore the standards of the Italian republics. In the midst of the flags arose a pedestal bearing the tabernacle and the sacred host. The English surrounded the sacred car with their longbows in their hands. They halted at Elferton, now North Allerton, awaiting the arrival of the Scotch. There was a dense mist, and the enemy might have taken the English army by surprise, but for Robert Bruce and Bernard Balliol, who possessed domains in England and Scotland. The former of these two knights approached King David. O King, he exclaimed, do you bear in mind against whom you are going to fight? It is against the Normans and the English, who have so often served you well with counsel and arms, and have succeeded in securing to you the obedience of your people of Celtic race. Remember that it is we who have placed these tribes in your hands, and thence arise the hatred with which they are animated towards our countrymen. These are the words of a traitor, exclaimed William, nephew of the King of Scotland. At the same instant, Malise, Earl of Strathern, was heard to exclaim, 
What need have we of this stranger? I have no breastplate, and yet I will advance as far as any among them. The old Norman turned his horse's head. I retract my oath of fidelity and homage, O king, he cried, and spurring his horse, he hastened towards the English, with Bernard Balliol crying out that the Scotch were following them. The Bishop of Durham was standing erect upon the sacred car as representative of the old Archbishop of York. He pronounced absolution in a loud voice, and the English and Normans, who had been kneeling, arose, exclaiming, Amen! The Scotch were already charging, amidst cries of Alban, Alban, the historical name of their country. Their impetuous attack had broken the ranks of the English, but the Norman cavalry, in close order around the car, steadily repulsed the charge. The archers formed again, and began to harass the mountaineers with their shafts. The long pikes of the men of Galloway were broken upon the Norman bucklers. The claymores of the Highlanders could not pierce their breastplates. The fight lasted two hours, and the confusion was terrible. Prince Henry, son of the King of Scotland, had succeeded in cleaving away up to the standards, but he was repulsed. The lances and the swords were broken. The fury of the attack abated. The retreat soon became a rout, protected only by King David and his corps of knights, who had rallied around him. The Scotch took refuge in Carlisle, where the English did not attack them. The Treaty of Peace, which was concluded in the following year, even left Cumberland, Westmoreland and Northumberland in the power of Scotland. The defeat of the Scots at the Battle of the Standard had cooled the ardour of the malcontents. The Empress Maud and the Earl of Gloucester had not yet appeared in England, but King Stephen committed a grave error. He alienated from himself the attachment of the clergy, who, up to that time, had been favourable to him, by suddenly casting into prison the Bishop of Salisbury, one of the partisans who had had the greatest share in his elevation and whom he had up to then loaded with wealth and honours. By the nativity of God, he exclaimed to one of his attendants, I would give him one half of England if he asked for it. He should grow weary of asking before I would grow weary of giving until the day when he should be dumb. That day had apparently arrived, for Roger of Salisbury and his two nephews, bishops of Lincoln and Eli, were suddenly arrested. The Bishop of Eli succeeded in escaping and taking refuge in a fortress. He defended himself valiantly, but they threatened to starve to death his uncle and his brother if he did not yield. The manners of the time were such that there was reason to fear the execution of the threat. The Bishop of Eli surrendered, and the king took possession of the property of the three prelates. But he had irritated a dangerous enemy. His own brother, the Bishop of Winchester and the legate of the Pope in England, summoned him to appear before a synod of bishops to answer for this breach of the privileges of the church. It was necessary to appeal to the Pope against the prelates and to disperse the synod by force. The Bishop of Salisbury died shortly afterwards of chagrin, say the chronicles. His nephews embraced the cause of the Empress and a great part of the clergy followed their example. 
the Synod had just been dispersed, September 1139, when Maud at length disembarked in England with 100 knights only. Some Normans went to meet her, but finding her so ill-attended, they kept back. King Stephen swept down upon Arundel Castle, where resided Queen Adelaide, widow of Henry I. He found her engaged in assisting her daughter-in-law who had just arrived. A chivalrous sentiment restrained Stephen from insulting the two princesses. He left Adelaide in peaceable possession of the castle, and the Empress was able to proceed and meet her brother, the Earl of Gloucester, who was endeavouring to revive the discontent in the counties of the West. Her partisans soon rallied round her, and raising her standard, she attacked the king. Sometimes she was defeated, sometimes victorious, and for eighteen months England was afflicted by the horrors of civil war. At last, a decisive combat near Lincoln resulted in King Stephen falling into the hands of the Earl of Gloucester. He was cast into confinement in Bristol Castle. The barons who had followed him hastened to the Empress, made peace with her, and acknowledged her right to the crown, the legate and the Bishop of Winchester being foremost. On the 7th of April, a meeting of bishops, again presided over by the legate, ratified the accession of Maud, absolving all the barons and their prelates from their oath towards Stephen. But the Empress was obliged to allow some months to elapse before her coronation at Westminster, so attached were the citizens of London to the cause of the vanquished king. Maud was haughty, and she lacked the tact and prudence so necessary to sovereigns whose throne is insecure. She harshly refused to give to the Bishop of Winchester the patrimonial lands of King Stephen, which he claimed on behalf of his nephew, Prince Eustace, and thus she mortally offended that proud prelate. On arriving in London, she demanded immediately an enormous tollage. The king has left us nothing, said the citizens piteously. I understand, replied the new king. You have given everything to my adversary, and you desire me to spare you. London ended the dispute by promising to pay, presenting at the same time an humble petition. Restore to us, they implored, the good laws of King Edward, thy great uncle, in the place of those of thy father, King Henry I, which are bad and too harsh towards us. The Queen rudely repulsed the petitioners, and she was awaiting the arrival of the promised gold when the bells of the city suddenly sounded the alarum. From each house issued a combatant armed with an axe, a bar of iron, or a bow. Like bees issuing from a hive, says the chronicle, all took the direction of the palace. At the same time, a troop of armed men, carrying the banner of Queen Matilda, wife of Stephen, presented themselves on the bank of the Thames upon the Surrey side. The Empress was at table. She sprang upon her horse and fled by the western gate, accompanied only by some servants, while the multitude pillaged the hall which she had just quitted. She was destined never to return to London. The Empress took refuge at Oxford. She had conceived some doubts with regard to the fidelity of the Bishop of Winchester, whom she sent for. Say that I am preparing, replied the prelate. The Queen had conceived the design of surprising him in his episcopal city, but at the moment when she entered by one gate, she saw him go forth by another, 
on his way to place himself at the head of the partisans of his brother. The queen gathered her adherents about her, but the bishop had returned, and he laid siege to Winchester, where the King of Scotland and the Earl of Gloucester had joined Queen Matilda. All military operations had been suspended for the Festival of the Holy Cross, 14 September, 1141, when at daybreak, Maud mounted her horse accompanied by a good escort and silently departed from the royal castle. She passed without serious difficulties through the camp of the besiegers who were occupied in the ceremonies of the day. When the pursuit commenced, Maud was already drawing near to the castle of Devises, but she did not feel herself to be safe here, thoroughly as that place had been fortified by the Bishop of Salisbury, and she continued her course. The Earl of Hereford alone accompanied her as far as Gloucester. The King of Scotland had set out for his kingdom, but the Earl of Gloucester was taken prisoner. A great number of his adherents were disguised as peasants, but their Norman accent betrayed them, and the English hinds, seizing this occasion to wreak vengeance on their oppressors, arrested them, and whip in hand, conducted them into the enemy's camp. The two parties were without leaders, for Matilda could do nothing without her brother. It was resolved to exchange the Earl of Gloucester for King Stephen, and in a grand council of bishops convened on the 7th of December by the legate, the latter hurled all the thunders of the church against the partisans of the Countess of Anjou, by which name he described Maud, as he had done on the 7th of April against the adherents of the Count of Blois. The war continued in England and in Normandy. The Count of Anjou had subjected that great province, but he refused to cross the sea to join his wife, and contented himself with sending his eldest son Henry into England with his uncle, the Earl of Gloucester. At the moments when the young prince landed in the country where he was designed to establish his race, his mother was besieged in Oxford by King Stephen. The winter was one of great severity, and the sufferings of the nation were unparalleled. The barons fortified themselves each in his castle, and even in the churches, say the chronicles, adding that they dug trenches in the churchyards, exposing to the daylight the bones of the dead. From thence armed men pillaged the towns and villages, the passers-by and the lonely cottages, it was possible to walk all day without meeting a man upon the road or seeing an acre of land in cultivation, for to till the earth was like tilling the sands of the seashore. Never had the pagan pirates inflicted worse evils. The siege of Oxford lasted three months. The snow covered the ground. Maud found herself on the point of perishing by famine. She attired herself in white, as did three knights of her suite and the four issued by a little postern and traversed the deserted country as far as the town of Abingdon, where they obtained horses. The castle of Oxford surrendered on the morrow, but Stephen was soon afterwards defeated before Wilton by the Earl of Gloucester. In the midst of these alternate successes and disasters, the burden of which weighed equally and constantly on the people, the Earl of Gloucester died. 1147 his nephew, whom he had kept in Bristol Castle in order to protect him against his enemies, returned into Normandy, and shortly afterwards the Empress herself, deprived of all support, 
relinquished the part she had played with so much fortitude for eight years in order to return to France. King Stephen was now master of the situation, but his throne, shaken under him, was not destined to become firm again. Pope Innocent II, the protector of the Bishop of Winchester, had just died. Celestine II and Lucius II had enjoyed the pontifical throne only for the briefest space. Anastasius II withdrew the title of legate from the king's brother and granted it to his adversary Theobald, Archbishop of Canterbury. Stephen had taken a part in the quarrel of his brother with the archbishop whom he had exiled and a part of the kingdom had been placed under an interdict. The church was too strong for a sovereign so feeble. Stephen was compelled to cede great estates to the clergy and to be reconciled with Theobald. But in vain he sought to obtain the recognition of his eldest son Eustace as his successor. The archbishop constantly refused his countenance. The quarrels broke out afresh and the episcopal domains were confiscated in several places. So long as King Stephen had only to contend against a woman, however divided England was, he had the best chances of success. But his new rival, Henry, was 16 years of age. He had just been knighted in Scotland, 1149, by his uncle, King David, and on his return he received from his uncle the investiture of Normandy. In 1150, Geoffrey of Anjou died, and his domains reverted to his eldest son, who two years later married Queen Eleonora, the divorced wife of King Louis the Young. She brought him, as her portion, the county of Poitou and the Duchy of Aquitaine. He was 19 years of age. His personal reputation, like his power, was growing daily. The party of the Plantagenets in England began to raise their heads, and when the prince landed in 1153 with an army small in number but strong in discipline, many adherents came to take service under his banner. King Stephen had also gathered together his forces, and the two rivals found themselves face to face at Wallingford, separated only by the Thames. They remained there two days without coming to blows. At length, the Earl of Arundel had the courage to declare that it was folly to prolong the suffering of an entire nation for the sake of the ambition of two princes. It was resolved to sign a truce with a view to negotiate a permanent peace. About that time, Eustace, the eldest son of Stephen, died in consequence of great excesses. The king, now only one son, who was still young and not ambitious. The two rival ecclesiastics, the Bishop of Winchester and the Archbishop of Canterbury, conducted the negotiations, and on the 7th of November, 1153, in a solemn council held at Winchester, King Stephen adopted Prince Henry as a son, giving the Kingdom of England as an inheritance to him and his descendants forever. Henry took the oath of fidelity and homage, receiving in his turn the allegiance of Prince William, the son of Stephen, on whom he conferred all the patrimonial lands of his father. A year later, on the 25th of October, 1154, King Stephen expired at Dover in his 50th year. For a while at least, civil war was not to desolate England.
End of Chapter 6, Part 2 Recording by Prattlepig